technology shapes and influences every aspect of our lives today, and we're only beginning to scratch the surface of understanding how it will radically change the way we live and work in the future. Coming up... Hello. Wikipedia's Jimmy Wales. It's Michael Hainsworth. Hello. Hello. People, I think and hope, are beginning to slow down a little bit and actually consider something before they share it. But obviously, you know, fake news and, and sort of hyped up stuff still spreads like wildfire. Um, I have a story uh, about myself where I, I nearly shared uh, fake news. And, and basically what happened is I saw, you know, something came across um, Twitter, Facebook, somewhere. And it was a very cute story that said that scientists have uh, finally determined that what we've all suspected for years is actually true, that if they were big enough, our house cats would eat us. <laughs> of course, we all love that. You're listening to The Future Rhythmic Podcast with Michael Hainsworth, a Nokia original series. Jimmy Wales was born August 7th, 1966 in Huntsville, Alabama. You wouldn't know it from the way he speaks. He tells me his Southern accent generally only comes out when he's on the phone with his mother. And if it wasn't for mom, Wales would never have created Wikipedia. He grew up with a lot of books in the house, but a ringing doorbell in his early childhood changed his life. His mother made the decision that day to buy the World Book Encyclopedia from a door-to-door salesman. In today's upside-down world, Wales isn't a fan of lies. In particular, he's not a fan of lying politicians. He points out U.S. President Donald Trump plays so loose with the facts on a regular basis and seems to get away with it. Wales, however, doesn't blame the state of truth today on Trump or Kellyanne Conway, who infamously coined the phrase alternative facts. Before flying across the pond to London, England for our day together filming Futurhythmic, we discussed over the phone that fake news is a symptom of a bigger problem. We began the conversation with the title of the episode we'd soon shoot, The Future of Truth in the Age of Alternative Facts. It's the topic of our time, I would say, in many ways. Um, you know, I, I, I have a perspective on that myself, which is that there are facts. And truth is the apprehension or the understanding of those facts. Uh, and that this is really, really, really important to um, everything that we care about as human beings in terms of being able to understand the world and make the world better, um, to go about our lives in a sensible way. And obviously the current uh, area where this is of great concern is around politics. Uh, So if people are making very important decisions in the voting booth based on uh, information that is not correct, uh, then we're going to end up making decisions sort of as societies that are incorrect. And uh, that leads us to a very bad place indeed. You were quoted as saying that when Kellyanne Conway spoke of alternative facts, your head exploded. <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right. I just, I mean, I, I remember literally putting my head down on the desk and just like shaking my head and thinking, these people are, you know, ridiculous. Did you think that there would be traction to this twisting of fact into lie as alternative facts? Because there was a there, there was a whole certain uh, segment of the population that looked at that, rolled their eyes, and figured there's no way they're going to get away with that. But it feels like they have. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a very curious kind of situation because I think 
the, the feeling people have that there's been a real drop in the trust in institutions of all kinds. So a drop in the trust for media, uh, traditional journalism, there's very low trust in politicians and so forth. And people do feel that they're being lied to all the time. And so I think that it's, um, you know, it's not so much that they think it's okay to lie. Uh, it's just they don't see that anybody's telling the truth. Now, I think they're wrong about that. But uh, it does mean that if somebody is known to be lying all the time, it's a very common reaction to go, well, of course, they all lie. It's a politician. Uh, so what? But how does truth survive in the age of alternative facts if we've decided to be tribal and partisan about it? Well, I mean, I don't, I don't think we have decided that. I mean, I think we've got certain problems in the world that are, you know, clearly um, issues that are driving uh, some of this, this stuff. So, I mean, one of the things we have is the, uh, you know, the... the the prevalence of the distribution of information via social media. Uh, and so what that has meant is that people are, you know, and, and the business models, uh, you know, when we, when we have a advertising only business model, I find that very problematic. And I don't think we really understood how problematic that was um, a few years ago, just in terms of it puts incentives in front of publishers, incentive in front of platforms, to just maximize the amount of time you're spending on a website or maximize the time, you know, the total number of clicks to, to a news story, which then doesn't really give the incentive to speak the truth and to build a brand that's based on trust in your customers who are paying your bills, but it just uh, drives a race to the bottom in terms of inflammatory headlines, you know, truth gets lost in the shuffle because, hey, if it's a really good story and it gets people to click and read, long enough to see some ads, then that's okay. And so I don't think that there's anything that's fundamentally changed about human beings. Human beings are no more or less, um, you know, tribal or uh, stupid than we have ever been, which is, you know, always we're a, a very mixed bag human beings. Um, but we've, we've got certain business models that are driving us in the wrong direction right now. And I think that um, you know, we're beginning to see some hope around changing those things. Uh, people are dissatisfied, you know, when they've lost trust in the media. That doesn't mean they don't want quality media. It just means they don't feel like they're getting it. So suddenly people are beginning to realize, like, hey, actually, the, the stuff that's coming over the transom that is inflammatory and gets me to click isn't actually helping me understand the world. Uh, and so I see, you know... Uh, things like the the New York Times has uh, their their number of digital subscriptions has gone from uh, a million to three million plus in just a few uh, you know couple of years time, and um, you know that's huge. That means people are saying actually it's time to pay for news. It's time to pay for quality. I wonder how much the rest of the world is like me because once Donald Trump was elected, I made a conscious decision to redirect my budgeted media funds away from the cable bill. I cut the cord yeah. and it gave me about a hundred bucks a month that I could redistribute. And I redistributed it among 
a variety of different news sources, including the New York Times, mm -hmm. explicitly as a means of saying, I believe we need to fight back against alternative facts and this U.S. administration, and we need to hold these people to account. Do you get a sense that the one million subscriptions to three million subscriptions was that sentiment? I think a lot of it was. I mean, I certainly would say... Uh, I don't think it was because they finally figured out exactly how to tweak the paywall to get the magic number of free articles versus when you have to start paying. Obviously, people have been working on that for a long time and making some progress. It, it is a real change of mood of people saying, you know what, this is, this is getting to be ridiculous. And, you know, one, one way I joke about this is to say, you know, say what you will about Donald Trump, he sells a lot of newspapers. <laughs> And a lot of late night jokes and all of that kind of stuff. A lot of stuff, yeah. But and, and there is concern, you know. Obviously, people are very upset about having a president who blatantly lies constantly with absolutely no sense of. I mean, I, I, I can't think of a single time ever when he had to, you know, sort of retract a comment or roll back something. He just barrels forward, you know. And in the past, if a politician lied, let's just say, and they're caught lying, they would either pretend that they merely misspoken or made an error, or they would, you know, apologize, or they would double down or whatever. It was, it's much more of a normal set of things. You know, this is upsetting to people, but the question is, is that transition, is that big surge we're seeing in people willing to pay for news and subscriptions, if that's solely a Trump phenomenon, uh, that we haven't really fundamentally changed our minds about this, then, you know, later on, we may end up in, you know, in 15 years time with digital subscriptions, New York Times having slumped back down to a million, uh, because whoever's in office then isn't upsetting everyone nearly as much. And then we haven't really solved the problem. I'm hopeful that that's not the case. I'm hopeful that we're actually building methods for people to pay. I mean, I, I like to give this example of um, magazines. So... There was a period of time in my life where probably for about 10 years, I didn't subscribe to any magazines, not one. Um, I was getting all the information on the internet, everything I wanted. And then suddenly when Amazon Kindle exists and starts offering magazines, and it's a, an impulse purchase for me to say, oh, actually, I, you know, I'm interested in boats. That's what my hobby is. So I buy four or five boat magazines every month and I do it on Kindle. And I'm subscribed to four or five boat magazines. And so, you know, suddenly I'm paying for content. I'm paying people to write, you know, quality content about boats rather than just depending on what I can find for free on the Internet. And that's because the payment method got easier. Uh, and I think that that kind of thing, you know, the app ecosystem and so forth, means that, yeah, actually it's easier than it used to be. I mean, one of the biggest barriers to people paying for news in the past wasn't the money, uh, nearly as much as it was just the burden and the effort of doing it. I mean, the truth is, I don't know anything about you, uh, but I bet you if you wanted to scrape together $100 a month and you didn't want to cut your cable, you would have been able to find $100 a month, but you didn't because you weren't upset enough yet. You know? right, right. Uh, so that you, you, you were lucky because you actually had a, a space open up in the budget, but ha frankly, had you been upset enough, uh, as we probably all should have been about five years ago, uh, we could have all diverted more money uh, to it back then. And, uh, you know, it, it does make a difference. So It brings back to your point uh, about the business model of news. Uh, so first, what I'm hearing is you are placing a certain amount of blame on the state of 
truth and alternative facts on in the media's lap. So with that, I, I've always believed that media needs a benevolent benefactor to take the day-to-day -day financial constraints off the front burner for journalists and make it uh, remove it from part of the decision-making process. What do you think? Um, yes. So I think that's great. Um, I think uh, two newspapers that I really admire, um, which would be the, the Guardian here in the UK and uh, St. Petersburg Times uh, in St. Petersburg, Florida, where I used to live, they both have a very similar ownership structure in which they are owned by a trust that has a trust fund. And they, they can't live indefinitely off that trust fund. That's an, been a very important issue for The Guardian, but it gives them a cushion that they've got enough money that uh, they're not, they don't have to worry sort of every quarter, if we don't meet our numbers, we're gonna have to lay people off. Um, the Guardian has had to lay people off because they missed their numbers for many years, but the point is they, they're able to resist, uh, you know, they're, they're not panicking about losing one advertiser if they're upset about a story because frankly there's money in the bank and the brand is more important than you know any one advertiser so i think that's good but the, the caution i have when i when i think about that that concept of uh you know those two are both cases where the original owner or founder of the paper left a ton of money uh and you know is no longer around to dictate things one of the concerns i have uh and it's something i'm very happy to see i'm very happy to see for example if if Jeff Bezos buys the Washington Post and is happy to fund it so that they're not so worried about their quarterly re results because Jeff's got plenty of money. Um, I'm happy about that, but I also don't think in the long run that's fundamentally the right model for journalism either. Um, the patronage of billionaires um, can go very, very wrong. Uh, Rupert Murdoch gives you a prime example of that with Fox News. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Where actually the... Um, yeah, Fox News might not be the best example with Rupert Murdoch in the sense that I think Fox News is incredibly profitable. So that's a slightly different issue, <laughs> right? right? Yeah. But I would say some of the newspapers that he owns uh, that are money losers, that he seems to continue to own them primarily because it gives him power and influence, that's really more the concern I have. Let's beat up journalists a little bit more. Let me ask you about this. I haven't, I haven't beaten up journalists at all. <laughs> I love journalists. Well, there, there's there's one uh, interesting sort of meme that's been making the rounds as of late, and it goes something along the lines of, if one source says it's raining and another says it's sunny, it should not be the journalist's job to report both, but to look out the window and report the facts. Yeah. Have we become so caught up in trying to avoid an appearance of bias that we've stopped recognizing the true role of journalism is to defend fact? Well, yeah, to some extent. I mean, I, I do think that that is something that is out there. You know, it's a classic uh, saying because it's a classic uh, issue you know, where it gets really upsetting is when you see uh, certain issues like uh, vaccination, where it's 100% obvious what the facts are, and you yet have a crank minority who thinks that vaccines cause autism and so on. And if I see a news story where both those sides are treated as, well, who knows, but we've got an expert on either side, uh, such as the dean of Harvard Medical School and 
a comedic actress on the other side. <laughs> this is this is ridiculous, right? This is not pursuing the facts. This is just reporting what different people are saying about things, and that's very lazy journalism. But we also have the problem, I would say, of highly partisan. You know, where if 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 we look outside and we see is it is it raining or, or I'm sorry, you know, if we if we hear it might be raining or it might be sunny, that rather than look outside, we look to our uh, how does it impact our political agenda here at this news organization. Uh, in other words, if it's raining outside, can we report that in, in such a way that it's Donald Trump's fault or that the Democrats did something to cause it to rain? Uh, you know, that's also a problem. It's like not even thinking about bias or non-bias. It's just reporting, you know, I'm going to report that it's sunny or I'm going to report that it's raining depending on if it helps my candidate, um, which is odd because rain doesn't actually impact elections very often, but you, you see my point. I do. I, the thing is, is that um, facts really don't seem to matter to most. Research shows that only one in three people trust fact checkers. That figure tumbles from 29% broadly to just 12% among supporters of Donald Trump. How do you break through that reality distortion field? Yeah, I mean, I think I think some of it is really old-fashioned, um, and I, it's areas where I do criticize the media, and and I think that it's not that what they're doing is wrong; it's just not good enough anymore. So, if if I see a news story reported um, where basically it really comes down to trust me, I'm a reporter at the New York Times because I haven't really given you any other evidence or any other proof of what I'm saying. I'm really wary of that, and I think a lot of people are really wary of that. But I also think that is what helps to open the window for people to disbelieve uh, in the media. So I'll give an example of a story that um, I still don't understand. Uh, really, at the bottom, I, I, I find the whole thing a big question mark. And this is from a news organization that I really do think is fantastic, and I trust them very much, which is Bloomberg, reported this story that certain uh, chips have been placed into servers uh, that have made it into Apple uh, that were placed there by the Chinese as a spying technique. Well, okay, that's a blockbuster of a story. Uh, if, if Apple's systems have been infiltrated by Chinese spies who are inserting chips on motherboards, that's a huge news story. And yet it took very, very short period of time for Apple to deny it in a very strong way. Like it wasn't your typical kind of corporate, well, some of the facts are wrong or we don't think this is characterized correctly. It's like, this is 100% not true. We have done an internal investigation. We have talked to everyone who would be in any position to know. And we find absolutely no reason for this to be something that's true. There is no evidence of it whatsoever. And Bloomberg, as far as I know, I haven't kept up with the story recently, they didn't retract it. And they also didn't say, well, look, here's the proof. Um, they just said, we stand by our story. And it's like, okay, well, I actually believe Apple in this case. I'm not sure who to believe. I, I wouldn't think Bloomberg would make things up out of thin air. They're not a clickbaity news organization. On the other hand, it's not good enough. And if you're reporting a story that somebody is absolutely flat out denying in such a strong way, you're going to have to prove it to us. And so that's the kind of thing that, you know, if I'm a Donald Trump supporter, uh, and, and I actually, I do look at the news kind of through this lens quite a lot. One of the things I, I like to do is 
there's a subreddit group called the Donald. Yes. And I visit there every few weeks um, because I just like to read and, and sort of think through what are people saying? What are people thinking? And, you know, a part of what they what they do is they say, look, here's an example story. Here's a story from CNN. This was a, an example I found there where they said, look, they, they, they've basically blown this all out of proportion. They've quoted the first half of Donald Trump's remark. They left out the second half, which clearly qualified it and clearly showed that he was just joking. And they didn't tell the public that. They misled the public on what Donald Trump said because they hate him so much. And, you know, I look at the story, I look at the transcript, and I'm like, you know what? They're right. They're right. CNN blew this one. And they should be retracting it. They should be apologizing. But instead, if they don't retract it, they don't apologize. And frankly, they should have never let it happen in the first place. Then in this media environment, for people who already are predisposed to, they want to disbelieve, um, well, you've just given them a reason. And even if it's a one small error one time, people are able to go, oh, yeah, CNN, I don't trust them. Like, you remember that time when they, they lied about what Donald Trump said? Uh, so why should we trust them now? And, and people want to disbelieve CNN if they're Donald Trump fans because they don't want to believe he's as horrible as he is. And uh, that just means uh, that we have to be super-duper rigorous. And it's, it's a pain in the ass, of course, but you have to build up a level of trust that people can say, yeah, okay, well, I don't actually have to trust CNN. They proved it here. They've got the transcripts. They've got the tapes. They've they published everything, and that's hard, and you're not always able to do it, but it's, it's really necessary now. But how much did we put on journalists who are doing, you know, they're, they're going to war with the army they've got, not the army they want. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Thanks largely, as you point out, to the revenue model being broken. Correct. And, you know, the solution when you see a decline in revenue is to, to cut costs. And so you can't cut your way to success in the media business. Yeah. What, yeah. Let's put some of the blame on the listener, on the viewer, on the reader. Is it not at, to, to some degree our fault for accepting this as well? I, I think of the Dunning-Kruger effect. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. Yes, I do. Yeah. Someone who knows less about a given subject is more convinced they know what they're talking about than someone who actually has been doing the research. Yes, it is true. And I mean, I, I do. I always take great pains to point out. I think there are some fantastic journalists out there working. Um, and I, in general, think journalists do a great job. Obviously, there's a few bad ones, but that's true of any profession. Uh, but the real issue is around the business model being broken and the incredible financial pressures that they've been under. And even responsible news organizations have had to make choices that I'm sure they weren't comfortable with in terms of cutting quality, cutting corners here and there because they just have to, to survive. They just don't have enough money to pay enough staff to do everything that needs doing. You know, some of the things that I think people should do, and I think they're starting to, you know, particularly around social sharing, um, we've seen, you know, the Edelman does this trust barometer survey um, every year, and the trust in social media has been dropping, and I think deservedly so, as people are suddenly realizing, you know, actually, just because my idiot friend shared this, it doesn't make it right. Um, my friend's an idiot for sharing it, you know. And um, people, I think, and hope, are beginning to slow down a little bit and actually consider something before they share it. Um, but obviously, you know, fake news and, and sort of hyped up stuff still spreads like wildfire. Um, I have a story uh, about myself where I, I nearly shared uh, fake news. And, and basically what happened is I saw, you know, something came across 
on Twitter, Facebook, somewhere. And it was a very cute story. It said that scientists have uh, finally determined that what we've all suspected for years is actually true, that if they were big enough, our house cats would eat us. <laughs> of course, we all love that. And so my daughter has cats and she loves cats. And we love to make jokes about the cats, you know, like that, you know, they ignore you or whatever. You know, they're cats. They've got a personality and then people love that personality. And we all do suspect, yeah, it, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't try to pet a lion because it would probably eat me. And if this cat was big enough, it'd probably try to eat me. So I nearly shared it because it's cute and it's probably true or whatever. But then I thought, wait a second, what, what does that mean? How did they prove that? You know, and so I looked at no site to the study. Uh, finally, one scientist's name was mentioned and a quote that didn't actually confirm the headline or the, or the meat of the story. Googled that scientist's name, found what I think is probably the paper, which was an examination of the personality traits of various types of cats, uh, lions, cheetahs, house cats, and so on, and pointed out that there are very similar personality traits across them. There was nothing in the original research that said that the cat would eat you. Right. right? That was an extrapolation. It was cute and made a viral story. So it's cute and it's a viral story. That was pretty harmless, but I was actually really glad that I paused and didn't share that because I was about to share it on social media and and it would have been embarrassing for me to be sharing something that was completely fake. And recognize as well that had you shared that once, your entire reputation would have come crumbling down, much like the <laughs> CNN for um, trumping up a particular story or the New York Times when they get something wrong. It, all it takes is one. And, and next thing you know, you are no longer a credible source. Is that the world we want to live in? Well, no, and actually, I'm, I actually suspect I could share stuff like that. And if I did enough of it and it was horrible enough, I might be president. So, <laughs> uh, okay. you know, I'm not sure how damaging it is because people are, people are aware, you know, like if a friend of mine shares something like that, in fact, a friend of mine did share something like that. They shared exactly that. And this was about a week after I had done my homework and I didn't think, oh my God, this person can never be trusted again. I thought, oh, almost happened to me. I sent a private message saying, oh, by the way, I checked that out. It's cute and I liked it, but it's actually not true. And then she removed it. Uh, but, you know, I think people are aware we're awash in a sea of nonsense and, you know, mistakes will happen. Let's come full circle back to why it is that you say you're beginning to see some hope. How is it we are going to fight fake news and alternative facts? Well, I mean, I think the, the, the biggest thing that we're seeing is, uh, you know, the rise in subscriptions, the rise in people willing to pay. Um, I was on the board of The Guardian for a while, and during that time, they really ramped up their efforts to get reader revenue, um, and that's been very successful for them. They've cut their losses substantially, and they're actually getting a substantial amount of money. And, you know, if you read The Guardian at all, you've seen it at the bottom of every article. They basically say, hey, why don't you give us some money because, you know, we're trying to live here, um, and that's working for them. They're taking a page from the Wikipedia playbook. Yes, well, uh, yeah, I always say, I, I, they were working on that before I got there, but I could take part of the blame uh, <laughs> or the credit uh, for saying to them, just ask people for money. Like, they love the Guardian. Just don't, don't worry about museum admissions or tote bags. Uh, they really just want to give money to the Guardian. Hmm. Uh, but, uh, you know, and then I'm working on a project uh, called Wiki Tribune, which is right. a tiny little pilot project, but I'm trying to explore some ideas here around what what can we what can we do to engage a thoughtful kind smart community in the process of journalism 
in a way that hopefully reduces some of the costs of doing journalism, if to the extent that people can do things and enjoy doing things as a hobby that traditionally you would have had to pay a journalist to do, then that means that for every dollar you get from the reader, then you can spend it on a journalist who does something that only journalists can do. And so, um, you know, we've got people, the, the main thing that people are successfully doing and enjoying is um, fact-checking in a very collaborative way, um, particularly if they're able to do the fact-check as desk research. But again, I, I come back to the point that even fact-checkers aren't trusted. Even fact-checkers aren't trusted, but I, I think in general, the wiki model, so here's the way I feel about Wikipedia. So Wikipedia traditionally, you know, there was a lot of jokes about Wikipedia, the quality and so forth. And that's died down a lot as the quality just continues to improve. But I think fundamentally, and, and, I, and I say this, you know, with, with, obviously I'm biased, it's my baby, Wikipedia, but people think fundamentally that Wikipedia is honest. They know that sometimes we get things wrong, that it's hard to do research, but people don't generally think that we're publishing fake news or trying to trick anybody or, or have an agenda. And, and I think they're right about that. And like one of the things that I, I saw on the Donald um, was somebody was complaining about a CNN you know headline. CNN said this, da da da. And somebody said, ah, you know, something like, I, I wish I could go in and edit it. What we really need is a Wikipedia for news. And what they meant was, if you see something completely wrong in Wikipedia, you just edit and fix it and give your reference, and, and you know, the world's a little bit better. So I do think there is a certain amount of trust that people can trust uh, a process. And obviously the wiki process is imperfect, I don't mean to pretend that it is, but it's another piece of the puzzle, you know, to say, yeah, actually, if, if, if we're writing, it's very hard in a wiki to be consistently biased in one direction because it annoys enough people that they come in and say, actually, come on, we're going to edit this and change it back the other way. So since you spend time on Reddit, you clearly have seen at some point uh, the meme of the stick figure holding up the sign in front of a politician in a crowd. Yes. That reads... Citation needed. Yes, exactly. How do you feel about that? Uh, I loved it uh, when I first saw it, actually. Uh, you know, I was like, that. that is... That is classic, and it's it's also kind of a fun thing. I know the person, a community member, who first created the little template that we used to tag and, and kind of wrote that expression, citation needed, um, which at the time, I don't think the expression even existed really, you know, <laughs> it wasn't an expression. And now it's like world famous, you know, citation needed is just like a thing you say if you think something uh, needs to be backed up better. That's kind of fun. See the future. Listen to what's next. Read about world-changing ideas. All by visiting futurhythmic.com. The Future Rhythmic Podcast with Michael Hainsworth is a Nokia original series.